The mechanics are in It Takes Two with Amy and JJ. We have the pros from Johnson's over there in Moorhead. Uh, okay, so Chris and Dennis, first and foremost, it's now winter, so what, what are people coming in for now? Did they finally decide that it was time to get new tires? It was finally time to take a look at some of those vehicle problems, even though it felt like spring up until last week? Uh, yeah, they, you know, they finally did a load test on their battery and it wasn't ready. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, the batteries. Oh, yeah, yeah they, they yeah. finally got the real test of winter. <laughs> Realize their heat's not working as well and yeah. uh, their tires aren't stopping them as they should either. So, uh, We have some questions already coming in to 35270. Um, someone wants to know, let's see, I know you're supposed to warm up diesel engines, but for how long? I assume a couple of minutes is sufficient, but I have a neighbor who has, has his diesel running for between 20 and 45 minutes. This is a pickup, not a semi. Yeah, that can be a little excessive at times. Um, I, I personally like to let them warm up. You get get a chance for all them fluids to flow and, um, get to them critical components, um, quicker, you know, and then diesels too, you got to remember they kind of run a little bit of cooler, so they might have a little longer warm up time if somebody likes their heater to be a little warmer when they get in there. Um, yeah, the heater performance on those at idle, a lot of the diesels hardly get to operating temp unless you're working on them, you know, as opposed to like a gas vehicle. Um, so is 20 minutes really outside of the realm, or would you say that that it, is it less than that? Well, like, you know, your, your normal gas car, you know, or in. Um, I would say five to ten minutes is probably a good accurate time to warm them up. You know, when we have some of them really, really cold spells, minus 20, minus 30, you know, some of them 15, 20 minutes, I, I'd say, is not all that unheard of. But sure. we haven't been super cold like that yet either. I mean, what do you think, Dennis? Yeah. What I've seen is, uh, you know, some neighbors, they go and delete their diesels so there's no emissions on them. And you can't see the house next to you, so she's probably concerned about that. Maybe it's like a little bit too much smoke for twenty minutes or something. But um, if if they're not deleted like that and they have the emissions, you can hardly even tell that they're running. You know. Um, someone else says we used to test an alternator by running the engine and disconnect disconnecting the positive battery cable. If it continued to run, we assume the alternator was good. Is that true for newer cars? Um, I guess I don't really use that as an accurate test. The alternator is meant to maintain the battery. The battery is still the heart and lifeblood of your charging system. So, yes, it it can run or it should run, Um, but you're not going to have consistent voltage either. So I'd still recommend having it, you know, brought into, you know, your trusted mechanic shop, um, you know, and actually do a physical test on them too because more goes into it than just your alternator and your battery too. You have cable condition, um, corrosion on your ground and your positive side that can affect current flow to your battery from your alternator and vice versa to the different loads on your vehicle as well. Uh, this is a great question. My car has a digital thermometer that reads the outside air. Where is the temp sensor located on a car? Depending on the car. Some yeah. of them are, you know, they're in the, like the radiator or like grill assembly on some of these newer ones, but usually they're right behind the front grill, you know, kind of right in the front of the vehicle. Um, any other places you've seen them, Dennis? No, mostly in the grill area. Yeah. Just ambient air temp sensors is what they are. So are they, a- I always try to figure out if mine is accurate or not. And I By feel comparing like it to a bank? It, oh, yeah. Or my watch or my phone, you know, trying to figure out if it's accurate. And I feel like some days it's better than others. Yeah, it depends. Um, some of the newer pickups will actually have them in like the passenger mirror. 
And those temperatures well, are that's bit, probably better. Well, yes and no. Um, oh. The sun load, depending on the time of the year mm-hmm. and how the sun beats on there, that'll actually kind of skew them a little bit. So it might read warmer than normal. I kind of like them up in the grill. Normally, if they're up in the front of the grill area, after you drive it for, you know, five, ten minutes, it's going to be pretty accurate. I'd say within probably one to three degrees of, mm. you know, your cell phone, your AccuWeather app. Okay. Um, do shops charge by book time or actual time? That's a good question. Um, I hear that a lot, too. Um, you have to remember, there's probably four to five different labor guides out there. And in our area, I consider the labor guide as like a, a suggested guide to go from. You know, it can be less, it can be more. The labor guide does not take an account for corrosion and wear and tear on the vehicle and modifications if people have aftermarket devices. So we use it kind of like a baseline. And then from there, we kind of evaluate, all right, does it have any add-on or aftermarket accessories? Do we have any rust or corrosion? So it's like a good baseline to use. But keep in mind, you know, if you look at three different labor guides, you're going to get slight, three different, slightly different times too. So uh, This is a question about, a, oh, sorry, did you have something to add to that, Dennis? No, no, okay. Um, is a timing chain replacement on a 2015 Chevy Equinox with 112,000 miles seem like the correct time frame? I'm getting that code reading. Well, um, yeah, I could probably get this one. Uh, a lot of times um, where we're getting these codes is, is the oil is not being changed on time. And these timing chains are controlled by oil pressure. It's what keeps them tight. And when the oil gets really dirty, they don't keep them chains tight. And they're almost like bicycle chains. They sit and rattle around, and then they, they get bigger, and then they throw the vehicle out of time. So um, I've seen them. I had one that lasted 220,000 miles and no chains. So it's how you take care of them. Interesting. And so if if you've owned this car for the for the lifetime of it, maybe think to yourself, well, you know, I did push it to 8,000 a couple of times. And yep. so and by the time you hit 112. Yeah. And I always change mine with full synthetic at 5,000 miles, no matter what. No matter what, huh? And, and it lasted that long. And I think it still lasted longer after I sold it to a guy, too. So who knows how many miles them chains lasted. Okay, yeah. this is an interesting question because we all know that there's the the do-it-yourself kind of person out there who wants mm-hmm. to take car maintenance, but this is it. Uh, I overfilled my transmission. Now it's leaking at the output shaft. Will it stop? This is a 1998 uh, Dodge. And so added three quarts, definitely overfilled it by maybe two quarts. Oh, you way overfilled it. <laughs> uh, it's now leaking where the transfer case, uh, transfer case and transmission meet. Uh, will this stop once the fluid gets back to max capacity or no? Well, for one, I never recommend, you know, overfilling a transmission is just as bad as not having enough in it. Transmissions are pretty picky. Um, when you have too much fluid, it kind of aerates it and it can, you know, pressurize it because there's too much in there, right? And then blow these seals out. Um, I would definitely have it corrected as soon as possible. And then I'd have maybe it reevaluated because something that old and some of them seals are, might be brittle and kind of compromised back there. So there might be a leak even though, you, even if you had the fluid corrected to the right level, there still could be a leak back there. Maybe that's why. The better question probably to be asked is, you know, why did you have to add it, you know? And so there's probably a leak there that should be addressed. Yeah, on them old 98s too, the, where the transfer case meets the transmission, they are not sealed. There's a gap in there, that that little gap. Right, yep. And, um, and when they're overfilled, they will come out that. 
think okay. the vent kind of runs back there, right? Yep. Thing. Yep. I keep hearing uh, people going back to this. So I don't know if there was maybe a television special everyone watched that I wasn't aware of, but I keep hearing people talking about ice buildup in wheel wells this year. And maybe it's because we went so long without having any, you know, real winter weather. But is that a real thing? Like, can I build up ice in my wheel wells? Will it set off the balance of my tires? I mean, should I be taking it to the car wash once a week just for that? Absolutely, 100%. Because when you get a new set of tires installed, they're balanced, right? Most shops will balance to kind of get rid of them vibrations or irregularities with the rim and tire matched up. So when you're adding ice, the same thing goes with gravel. You know, if you're driving down dirt roads a lot and you get that gravel build up and it dries in certain spots on the inside of that rim, you're essentially throwing off the balance. You're adding weight to different spots of the rim where there shouldn't be. So, yeah, it definitely is a good idea to kind of take a look. Most of the times you can get a good visual and you'll see there'll be stuff caked down in your rim. Most people are pretty familiar with what they look like during the summer. You know, so when you start seeing that Mm -hmm. accumulation in there, it's a good time to have it, you know, cleaned out, you know. I mean, will just a trip through the car wash, will that take care of it? Or do I need to, you know, hop underneath with the garden hose? Like, what's the best way to clean it out if I want to do it at home? If you want to do it at home, lightly, you know, probably poke at it and try to get some of the bigger chunks off. But be careful, too. If you use sticky wheel weights at some shops, you know, you could run the risk of taking that off with it, too. Um, the best thing I'd do just to avoid any damage is probably, you know, bring it to your trusted shop. You know, have them look at it, and they'll tell you, you know, what to do in most places. If you bring it in for an oil change, too, they probably have no problem taking care of that for you while they got it on the hoist. Yeah. There are a lot of oil change questions coming in. Um, should you always change your oil at 3,000 miles regardless of what the manual says? Should I change oil according to mile or percent of life of the oil? I'm a change it at every 3,000 no matter what kind of girl. Like, I just, I never... You know, I never get to the month that it's supposed to be. I always get there before I should, but I always change it at 3,000 miles. It just seems like the safest route to go, but yeah. that's not, is that necessary? Yeah, well, what, I, what I'd recommend, you know, on just a regular oil change, not a synthetic, change it at 3,000. Do a full synthetic at five. Um, I believe your percentage goes to like 7,500, isn't it, Chris, somewhere on there? Every manufacturer is a little different. Yeah. Some you actually physically set the miles and it'll count on the miles. Some use a oh. fancy algorithm that determines with the outside temperatures and how long it idles, too. That's a big one. I mean, we service yeah. some cop cars, Dennis, and uh, we do at the shop, and they have a lot more idle time, right, than miles. Now you got to take an account for that, too. Sitting and idling, too, isn't always necessarily good for the oil for the long yeah. term. Mm. hours a lot of hours and stuff like that so but i'd say on average for most of the consumers yeah three you know three for conventional five thousand for full synthetic is a good rule of thumb yep probably about twice a year i guess is usually about the average please ask one of your guests if they think the wind chill affects the battery and anything else on your vehicle well definitely gets it colder quicker right um it's not really going to affect the actual temperature but it will get it to that freezing point quicker right it'll cool it off quicker so <coughs> long story short it, it does have some effect yes but okay b- before we uh check in with rusty halverson i gotta ask okay so we're talking about idling there we idle all the time you know i start my car every morning before i leave and sometimes i forget about it so i go and i auto start it again and i auto start it again so if I'm auto-starting my car on a regular basis, I mean, that time adds up quite a bit. Is that something I should be considering then with my oil changes? Well, the percentage will calculate, too, with the hours. Okay. So that, that will go up if you've got the percentage unit on your 
Um, but, you know, with the scan tool, we can check hours too, you know. Well, that might be kind of embarrassing. If yeah, I bring some of them, <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised, you know, 20,000 hours. It's like, whoa, what'd this guy do, you know? <laughs> what are you doing? That's why you're, you're, you're yeah. in a lot of drive throughs huh, buddy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> this but, is... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm fine. You're okay. Yep. We're wrapped. The mechanics are in here on KFGO. Back to the text club. Some questions coming in. Mechanics, how many different codes can a bad gas cap set off? Oh, geez. <laughs> I'm trying oh, to think geez. of all the all the different times that I've seen it, but I've seen them probably set about anywhere from four to eight different trouble codes, depending on. Oh wow. Depending on what the EVAP system's trying to do when it has that basically loss of a seal um and every bank and manufacturer has a little bit different evap system you know and how they monitor things so i'd say you know four or five different codes it could set there on average so it's a lot okay car guys like they just called you car guys (laughs) uh rural dwellers with no city driving start the vehicle and drive 15 plus miles suggested mileage for regular old car 250,000 miles or new with synthetic oil for oil changes. Would the same apply there? Three thousand for yeah, I mean standard five thousand for synthetic. As far as the oil quality, yes. Um, one with that higher of miles, though, I'd get in the habit of maybe checking the oil level every time you fill up, or maybe every other time you fill up, because uh, you know, unfortunately, you can't predict when leaks or when the uh, engine will start consuming some of the oil too, as well. But as far as the oil quality goes, yeah. Wouldn't you agree, Dennis? It's yeah. still a good three to five, you know, depending on if it's conventional. Yeah. Three to five. And then, you know, if you're short trips and you can't get to that three to five, definitely change it once a year. You right. know, get that, you know, because you're creating a lot of moisture in that engine by not getting that engine fully warmed up and so it's breathing right. Um, so it's creating a lot of moisture and to get rid of that, best to change it at least once a year. Okay. The mechanics are in from Johnson's in Moorhead. Someone said once a year, 1,500 truck is nine months old with 18,000 miles. This is actually the second part of a text because oh. they're, they're rural dwellers with no city driving. Oh, that was the one I yep, already yeah. asked. Yep, and so okay, they gotcha. were just coming back. They're gotcha. saying once a year they have a 1,500 truck, nine months old, 18,000 miles. So okay, gotcha. Suggested that was the one for regular or synthetic. Any change in that, in your recommendation now that you know a little more of that car? Right. It sounds like they don't drive it too much, right? So they're just kind of looking at a general maintenance deal. I'd still probably recommend once a year. And then, yeah, obviously, to, you know, check it in the meantime, too. So Okay. Um, and then, yeah, full synthetic probably right. in that one. Yep. I mean, in all honesty, are, are you recommending regular oil to anybody anymore? I can't think of the last time I went in and didn't do full synthetic. Even a lot of the regular oils are a, essentially a synthetic blend, but they don't have the properties of a full synthetic. So the synthetic blends kind of like the new regular for cars, I guess. But most cars are coming from, you know, the factory recommended that they need that synthetic oil in there, too. So, And uh, the, another question about timing. How often should I rotate my tires and why do I need to? Um, about every other oil change. So about every six to 10,000, you should rotate them. Um, the thing about tires on, depending on if you have a front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, or all-wheel drive vehicle, is depending on your drive axle usually will wear your tread down quicker because they're responsible turning the wheels to get the vehicle moving. Same thing if you leave your tires on the front for too long. Um, when you're cornering, that'll cause the outside and inside edges of the tires to wear more. So you need to rotate that so they kind of wear evenly. Otherwise, they'll start cupping, make noise, um, wear out prematurely. And then also, too, if you have loose suspension parts, that's also going to play a factor into wearing out your tires early. Here's a bizarre question for you. So this is a, uh, a Ford Edge from 2013. 
The headlights are turning off while driving. At first, it was occasional. My passenger side headlight would go out while driving. Now it is happening to either headlight, though not at the same time and not every time I use them. They will both come back on if I turn the headlights off and turn them back on. So intermittent issues with a headlight going out. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen a lot of that with, um, you know, especially headlight switches and stuff like that. They heat up or even relays, you know, they, they heat up and then they let go. They cool down and then they come back on. So it, it's electrical issues, something like that. You know, if you don't want to get too involved, take, take it to your trusted mechanic. Uh, and not all headlights are built the same, right? Like, I feel like a Correct. couple of years ago I was hearing that people were just swapping them out, but they are putting a headlight in that had too much draw. Like, they essentially went in and said, I want to buy the best headlight possible, but that isn't the one that they necessarily should have put in, like, a vehicle that they were driving. Right. Normally, like, they're, like, halogen. There's, like, HID bulbs. And another thing, too, you got to take into account is um, some of these newer vehicles have really sens- <clears throat> sensitive sensing systems for them bulbs so if you replace just one side and sometimes you'll see one go out prematurely again because a brand new bulb versus one that's been in your vehicle for quite a while will draw a slightly different current right so one will kind of take more load for that circuit than the other one which can cause it to heat up and pop you know prematurely uh here's a question a tire question uh i've got one tire that ran over a nail it was fine for a few months now all of a sudden it seems like there's a slow leak again i've always been told don't replace just one tire at a time thoughts well um all depends on what kind of vehicle you have if you know if you should replace them as pairs if you have just a two-wheel drive um, if you have an all-wheel drive you know that's you know 10 percent is gone off of them you have to replace all four so holy moly yeah uh, fixing a tire in this day and age like we you can get a pretty good fix right like just because you hit one nail or one screw doesn't mean that that tire has to be shot completely right right Right. usually depending where it happens in the tire like if it gets punctured in the sidewall we do not repair those you know that's kind of a liability and a safety hazard Um, but usually if it's on the, the normal tread block the part that touches the road usually about twice you know is what i'd recommend if you have to repair it any more than two times you know for different holes Probably time to start thinking about getting different tires on there. What's uh you guys know the penny trick with tires that everyone like <laughs> if they're looking at the tread, like you put it in there and if you can see the top of Abe's beard or something like that, you need to replace the tire the treads pretty far down. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of an old rule of thumb. Um you could every tire has a wear bar. If you look really close in the tread, you'll see this bar that goes across. And when it gets down to that bar, it's about the same as the penny thing. Um, that's when it's time to get rid of them. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, This question, uh, a Honda Pilot, 2011 Honda Pilot, a high-speed vibration, 65,000 miles on the car. When they hit 70 miles per hour, it it starts to vibrate. Tires have been replaced, bushings have been replaced, and it still vibrates. Yeah, if that one's an all-wheel drive, it kind of sounds like the main drive shaft that goes from the transfer case to the rear differential. Um, might have some binding U-joints on it. A lot of these imports on those rear drive shafts, they're not really a serviceable U-joint, so it's possible that that, that complete rear drive shaft might need to be replaced. Is that a, a pretty big project? I mean, 65,000 miles on this vehicle doesn't seem like a lot, especially from 2011. Right. Yeah. You know, it sounds like it doesn't get driven a lot either. Um, and then if, yeah, if the tires have been replaced, all that too, 
you know, it's possible you have a bent rim, but normally you're going to notice that a lot quicker too. Normally when you start getting over 55 miles an hour and you start getting vibrations like that at the highway speeds, it's usually like axle or like something's spinning at the same speed of the engine or same speed of the axle. That's normally when you're going to notice those type of vibrations. Okay, let's talk about this Jeep. The mechanics are in. It takes two with Amy Eiler, J.J. Gordon. We've got Chris and Dennis in here from Johnson's Auto. My Jeep has been running just fine. Drove it to and from work. No issues. After getting home, it started storming, so I went to move it to the garage, put the key fob in, lights turn on, but nothing. It didn't turn over. Uh, it didn't even try to start. Battery tested. It's good. Replaces starter. Still nothing. Well, definitely, you know, there's a couple things you can check there. One, it'd be nice to, even if it drove fine, just to rule it out, make sure you can turn that engine over by hand freely with like a socket ratchet on the crank. Not necessarily the engine locking up all the time, but you can have another accessory component that'll lock up. That is belt driven. That'll kind of prevent it from turning over. Then also, too, while cranking, you do need to make sure on the small terminal on your starter you are getting voltage down there. Um, and then also, too, the quality of your battery cables. You know, you could have a bad where your negative cable goes to the engine block. It, it could be bad. Um, you know, so when you're making that demand for starting, those starters draw a lot of amperage if you don't have a good, you know, circuit integrity from the battery to the starter and to the engine block there may not be enough available power just to turn that over in general. So there's a few things to check there. Make sure it turns over freely by hand and make sure you're getting power actually at the terminals when you're in the cranking position. Weird question. Could it potentially be the key fob, the battery in the key fob is completely out, and so it's not sending any signals? So if you're pushing the button? Yeah, that can happen too, but if it's actually powering up, I mean, did they mention if it is a push-button starter or if it's a key start? Yeah, he says it's a key fob, so. So... Yeah, as a fob, normally it won't even power up, you know, if you have, like, a bad battery, then you have to put it in, like, its docking station to get it to power up. So, I mean, that could be. Normally, you're going to have some more telltale signs before it just won't do anything, you know, or start like that. Like a key not detected, it'll usually displays that that. right on the dash, you know. There'll be, like, a security light flashing, then, you know, it might be some key fob related, but... Uh, they're just calling you the mechanic guys in this, so you're now the mechanic guys. When I get gas, uh, I use the Upside app. When I hang up the handle on the pump, my mobile app starts processing it. How is the pump in my phone communicate? Oh, so this is about the, a gas pump uh, communicating with uh, something, an app on their phone? I don't know. Oh, the Upside app? Yeah, yeah. That, that really has nothing to do with your the vehicle per se, but the gas station's report that you or that participate in the upside app they report their purchases to this app so once you make your purchase and you say hey i filled up this app and the gas station are going to go through their credit card transactions look for your credit card number to verify that you purchased it and then that's how they give you your rebate so so it's not necessarily has anything to do with the vehicle but your mobile phone and the pump yeah i mean because i've used it before too it's just my phone you check, you know, you you say you want to use this deal, and then you go fill up. Make sure you go to the right address, obviously, because there's multiple gas stations that participate. And then after you're done purchasing it, you know, make sure also your card number matches the card you you pick to purchase. And then yeah, within two to three days, they oh neat they can find the purchase through the app and through the gas station. And then yeah, then they give you your whatever rebate per gallon back. 2008 Kia Rio, 65,000 miles, intermittent tire pressure light. The pressure is good. Hmm. Uh, What year did you say that was, 08? Yeah, yep, 2008. We have some batteries starting to get weak in the sensors, too. Okay, so how these tire pressure sensors work, 
is there's a, there's a sensor in every valve stem of a car and they have batteries in them that roughly only last like 10 years. So every 10 years, you're pretty much going to have to replace the TPMS sensors in the, in the tires. Um, they can read and they can't read and it just all depends on what the battery life is in them. I, I feel like tire sensors need to be replaced all the time. I had a car where it felt like every single time I brought it in, I had to switch out a tire sensor. Is that, I mean, are they making them better nowadays? You said like 10 years is not a is not unheard of to, yeah. to get the life out of that. But Yeah, depend, when we have vehicles come in the shop with a tire sensor issue, we'll kind of evaluate it and then present the customer with the option. Say, hey, you know, due to your vehicle age, we can do just this one. But then you're going to have one with a brand new battery, right? And it puts off a, a frequency. Then you're going to have one that the battery may say good, but it's still not going to generate as strong of a frequency, right? So we kind of take it by a case-by-case basis. But, you know, if it gets more than five years old, we start presenting the customer, hey, you know, you have two sensors that are out, but we'd probably recommend doing all four so we can just kind of nip it in the butt and then be done with it. So There you go. I tell you, the mechanics are in from Johnson's Auto. You guys covered a lot of ground today. Holy yeah, moly. <laughs> Well, it seems like it's been a while since we've been in with all the days yeah. filled on the calendar. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking about that on the way over here. We were stored up with a lot of information. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly. Running over the top. <laughs> if uh, someone's interested in coming over to Johnson's Auto, they've got a vehicle that needs fixing or they want some more advice, how can they get a hold of you? Well, we're located 11 blocks north of Menards at 2627 16th Avenue South in Moorhead, and you can give us a call at 218-512-0506. Chris Dennis, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks yeah, for having thank us, you. guys.